invite you to open your Bibles with me to Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, and we're going to be reading chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 4. Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll read through 2, verse 4. This is a letter where uh, the writer is seeking to magnify the glory of Jesus, and uh, throughout the letter is pointing the readers to the wonder of Jesus. In chapter 1 here, he's going to... um, be talking about Jesus' superiority and uh, specifically in regards to the angels. Uh, there was seemed to be maybe some confusion in the early church and some people were kind of getting excited about angels and talking a lot about angels and, and uh, the writer wants them to remember it's not about angels. Angels are just ministering spirits. Uh, Jesus is the, uh, is the glorious one. So let's give our attention to God's word tonight, Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago and at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of... (laughs) Excuse me, of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Well, God, long ago you spoke through the prophets, but now you've spoken through your son. And I thank you that you give us the opportunity through the word to hear Christ, speak to us. We get to see Jesus, and I pray, Lord, that tonight we would see him truly and uh, see him to be glorious and good, the lover of our soul, 
the founder of our salvation, the king of our life. I pray, Lord, that we would see him, love him, and worship him, trust in him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, the letter of, uh, written to the Hebrews is a letter that is meant to magnify the person of Jesus Christ. The, the word magnify is, um, it can be either to, right, if you have a magnifying glass, you're trying to take something that's small and make it look big so you can see it better, or you magnify things like you do in a telescope where uh, you, something is very large but far away and, and you're trying to bring it near. You want to you see the glory of it. And uh, the writer here is, uh, Jesus is on the throne of God in heaven, but he wants to uh, take this uh, telescope of truth and and highlight the glory of Jesus so that we, we um, are in awe and we love him and we worship him. Um, just imagine you were a young lady in a, in a culture where uh, you were not free to pick your own husband, but that task was uh, reserved for uh, your best friend. And uh, the best friend then had to go looking. They you know, would talk to you and see what you're sort of interested in. But imagine your best friend comes back one day and says, I found him. He's the guy. He's perfect. Uh, he's, he's tall, dark, and handsome. Uh, he loves children. He's, he's very kind with animals. He's, um, he treats his mother with respect. He writes poetry. He's very rich. And as some of you are falling in love already. <laughs> and um, what are they doing when they're, when they're speaking like that? They're magnifying this young man. They're just pointing out all the attributes that, uh, that you would find to be desirable. And that's exactly what the writer here is doing. He's, he's highlighting throughout this letter the, the attributes about uh, concerning Jesus Christ, the things that, that we should look to and, and, and say, that's magnificent, that's marvelous, that's wonderful, that stirs my soul. There are things we don't know about uh, the book of uh, the letter written to the Hebrews. One of the, uh, one of the key being, we don't know who wrote it. It was uh, sort of commonly held for a long time that the Apostle Paul wrote it, but uh, that's always been debated. Tertullian back in the third century believed that Barnabas wrote it. Others uh, suggest maybe Luke, some say possibly um, uh, Apollos, an early teacher. I think Barnabas is uh, the best um, possibility here for several reasons. Uh, he is the, the, uh, the nature of the Greek language uh, would fit uh, a man who was Greek, Barnabas was Greek, but uh, who was very familiar with the Jewish system. Uh, Barnabas would qualify him both. But, but specifically, uh, Barnabas, that wasn't his real name. His real name was Joseph. Uh, he got his name from the apostles. You can read about it in Acts chapter 4 where they name him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Uh, Barnabas just seems to be one of those guys that loved to encourage uh, people. And how are you doing? The, the word means to kind of a come, to come alongside and speak truth to encourage a brother or sister along in the faith. And, and that's exactly what the letter is about. There's all sorts of uh, encouraging words. We just read tonight from Hebrews 12. Therefore, let us put off everything that hinders, the sin that so easily entangles us, and let's run. You see, there's that encouragement. Let's run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Hebrews 10, 25. Let's not give up meeting together, but encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. It's a letter packed full of encouragement. And there's a reason for that, and that's because he's writing to a suffering church. 
Uh, again, we're not exactly sure who, uh, who the, the audience, uh, I think it's the best guess is Roman Jewish Christians. They are, uh, they're suffering Christians. They're uh, early on, the Roman emperor put a, um, um, a law that uh, Jews had to leave the city, and many Christian Jews then were part of that, and so they lost all their possessions. They had to leave their homes. It's referred to in this letter in chapter 1032. They've, they've suffered persecution, and they're going to continue to suffer persecution. And they're tired. Suffering wears you out. Uh, suffering is, is difficult. Long suffering can drain your soul. And it seems like these believers have just become, they're wore out. They're sluggish in their faith. Chapter 511, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. They're not eager to hear as they once were. Chapter 6, we desire uh, that you would show the same earnestness uh, and the, to have full assurance of hope to the end so that you may not be sluggish. Maybe you know what that sluggishness feels like. Maybe you're there uh, tonight. And you're just plodding along, which, is, which is, is good. But the writer here says there's reasons for joy. There's reasons for expectation. And so in, throughout the letter, let's strive to enter into the rest. Hold fast to your confession. Draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. And the genius of his encouragement is not that he's just saying, you know, Let's strap it on. Let's, let's try harder. Let's dig in. Let's, let's do better. That's not the encouragement. He's not a, a, a sports coach just trying to make you do the thing you don't want to do by, by um, yelling at you in a sense or just encouraging you. You can do more. You can do better. That's not what he does. What he, what he does is, says, let me, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me remind you about Jesus. The beauty, the glory, the wonder, the power, the kindness, the faithfulness of Jesus. Look to him, chapter 12. John Newton, in his um, book that I just uh, read a little bit ago, I talked about that, John Newton on the Christian life, great book. But uh, Newton was convinced that this was the key to a true Christian experience, that all true Christian experience is... Um, flows out of looking unto Jesus. He wrote a little uh, verse about it. It goes like this. Uh, By various maxims, forms, and rules that pass for wisdom in the schools, I strove my passions to restrain, but all my efforts proved in vain. But since the Savior I have known, my rules are all reduced to one, to keep my Lord by faith in view. This gives me strength and motives too. All the rules, do this, don't do that, have just been reduced to one thing, look to Jesus. And everything flows from that counsel. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to just look over chapter 1 here and look to Jesus and see the beauty of Jesus. Notice first Jesus, the glory of Jesus as the word of God. Long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Just a wonderful reminder that God speaks, that we are not people trying to figure out what God is like. 
contrary to what uh, even uh, liberal Christian theologians will say, that the the Bible is the record of people's experience um, seeking for God. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible is the record of uh, God seeking people, God seeking his children and, and seeking sinners in Jesus Christ. And so the Bible claims to be the record of God saying, in the beginning, right, God says, and he creates a world. And all through Scripture, you have the, a speaking God. God in the Old Testament speaking through his prophets and sending his prophets to say, thus saith the Lord. Uh, one commentator says, in the Bible, God says to this world, here I am. That's a, that's a magnificent thing. It's a profound thing. That, that God has not left us to ourselves. He's not left us to try to figure it out on our, on, on our own. That God says, this, this is what I am like. This is who I am. This is what I've accomplished. This is what I, I promise. God talks. It's magnificent. We're not left to figure it out. And then, but, but the writer here wants, it sets up this contrast between long ago and, and in, now in these last days. Uh, clearly meaning we live in the last days. The, the only thing to happen yet uh, is the return of Jesus Christ. That's all that's left in the great drama of redemption. And so long ago in the past, he spoke by his prophets and through ceremonies and shadows. He spoke to Noah and says, Noah, build an ark. He speaks to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to go to the land of Canaan. He speaks to Moses and says, Moses, I want you to lead the people out. He speaks through his prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and such, and, and they speak the words of God to the people. Have you ever read the Old Testament and just thought to yourself, I wish that God would do that today. I wish that God would speak to me like he spoke to Moses and like he spoke to Noah. Well, the wonder is that the writer here is saying he has. Notice, in the old days, he spoke to the prophets. In these last days, he's spoken to us. We're the prophets. In fact, Jesus says that John the Baptist was the greatest prophet, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater. That we have a a more exalted position than Old Testament prophets. God has spoken to us. That's what the text says. It's a very uh, unnerving experience if, if, um, when, you, when you realize that in the Bible, God is talking to you. I, I hope you've had that experience. I just need to read you a short uh, clip from a great book from Rebecca Manley Pippert called Out of the Salt Shaker, Into the World. Maybe some of you read this before. But here's, a, here's an experience of someone first coming to um, understand that, that the Bible, in the Bible, God talks to us. So let me read the story. A few, year, a few years ago, I was invited as part of a team to Stanford University to teach for a week on evangelism. I lived in a dorm with the students, and on the first day, I met Lois. She was bright and sensitive and skeptical about the existence of God. After we had several talks about God, I told her I was having a Bible study on the floor to look at the person of Jesus. She could come and examine the primary source material as critically as she would a Marxist manifesto. Okay, I'll come, she said, but the Bible won't have anything relevant to say to me. The next day, I discovered Lois was living off campus with her boyfriend, Phil. To my great surprise, he came with her to the Bible study. Not knowing her background, I had already decided to lead the study on, a, uh, to lead the study on the woman at the well in John 4. 
I began introducing the chapter to the group, noticed Phil and Lois sitting there, and suddenly remembered the passage dealt with a woman who had sexual problems. I feared Lois would think I had planned this just for her. With a step of faith, I frantically tried to think of how to avoid the crunch of the passage, uh, though I was sure God had gotten me into this mess. Lois and Phil were seated close to my left. Thinking it would be better if Lois did not read the passage aloud, I called on Sally, who was immediately to my right, calculating that if each person read a paragraph aloud, we would finish before it was Lois's turn. To my dismay, a girl three seats away from Lois started reading. Happened to be Sally's twin sister. She didn't know that. Identical sister. So she says, Sally, would you start reading? And here's this girl over here starts reading. Then Lois read the portion. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for the man you're living with now is not your husband. It was her first experience of reading scripture, and her eyes grew as big as saucers while I hid behind my Bible. I must say, this is a bit more relevant than I had expected, she commented. (laughs) And as she saw with what sensitivity and perception Jesus interacted with the lonely woman, Lois's face showed how moved she was. The next day, uh, Rebecca said, is there any reason you shouldn't become a Christian? And and Lois said, no, there's not. And, And... Rebecca said, well, I can think of one, uh, that you're living with your boyfriend, and if you become a Christian, you'll have to leave. And they talked that through. And uh, they prayed, and and Lois went home to think about it. And uh, the next day, um, let me just read it. After dinner, the students who had attended the Bible study stopped me in the hall, saying they were fascinated by the study on Jesus. And then we heard a noise and turned to see what it was. And here came Lois, slowly walking down the corridor, carrying several suitcases and smiling with tears streaming down her cheeks. Seldom have I seen a more graphic picture of what it means to become a Christian. That's what happens when God speaks. Uh, People hear, Jesus says, right? My sheep hear my voice. Uh, God speaks in his word. God speaks to you in his word. He speaks to me in his word. God has one message for the world. That is Jesus. He's spoken to us through his son. In the past, it was to to the prophets many times, different ways. But now there's one message. This is my son. Listen to him. That's God's message for you and, 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 and for me today. That's his message for the world. This is my son. Listen to him. Jesus is God speaking to us. And that's encouragement for a weary believer, that God has spoken in these last days and continues to speak to you in these last days in his word and through Jesus Christ, his son, that if you want to know what God is doing or what God thinks of you, what's God's purpose for you, you can read it all in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see it all through the lens of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. God is speaking to us through Jesus He is God's word. And then we see Jesus as the glorious one in relation to creation, uh, in relation uh, to God, relation to the angels. And I'm just going to go through these briefly, but in relation to creation, the writer says he, um, he's uh, appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. It's, it's really magnificent to see the big, bold, brash statements that Scripture makes about Jesus. This is not just, Scripture doesn't say, listen to him, he's a really good moral teacher. Or, or just listen to him and, and try to follow his example. It never says that. 
It says, listen to him. He made you. And everything else. He knit you together in your mother's womb. Listen to him because he is the one who made all things. And, uh, and when Jesus, of course, arrived on this earth, he acted like he made things. He acted like the creator. He would, he would say to leprous cells, uh, be done, be gone, and, and they left. And he would command demons, also created things, created beings, leave, and they would leave. And he would say to the wind and the waves, stop. And they stopped. And he would multiply bread and raise the dead and say and curse a fig tree and it dies. He just acts like the creator. Who does these things? Jesus does. All the time. No apologies. No fanfare. He does them because he is the king and the creator, the Lord of his world. It's his world. So you see, we're not doing Jesus a favor when we're, when we're thinking about believing in him or when we're thinking about obeying him. We're, we're not doing him a favor. He's doing us a favor by letting us take the next breath because he upholds all things by the word of his power. And the moment Jesus stops upholding you, remember you're just you're a collection of dust animated by the breath of God, the breath of life. And the moment that the Lord stops upholding you, you stop existing. He created all things. And he's the heir of all things. And the all things here doesn't just mean he's the heir of all the stuff of creation. It means he's the heir of all the blessing and riches and honor and glory and praise. It all rightly belongs to Jesus, both by virtue of creation and redemption. And you find that in the book of Revelation where the angels gather and they worship Jesus. In, in chapter 4, verse 11, because of the work of creation. Worthy, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have your being. And the angels thunderously worship and roar their approval. Worthy, worthy is Jesus. He made everything. And then in chapter 5, verse 12, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and honor and glory and blessing. Do you know anyone else that you could say that about in all the universe? That he's worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and honor and glory and blessing that all things belong to him. You see, Jesus, Jesus is the beginning and the ending, the alpha and the omega from him and through him and to him are all things. There is no one more glorious than Jesus equal in power and glory with the Father. And the encouragement, you see, then, is that we, this is our Jesus. This is the Jesus who, in chapter 2, we're going to see, claims us as his brothers. Lord willing, we'll look at that next week. Wonderful encouragement. 
This Jesus came and gave his life for us, and this Jesus now is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Uh, We are poor and weak and needy, but we belong to Jesus. And the glory that belongs to Jesus, the Bible tells us, belongs to us. That's a staggering thought. The glory that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. writer talks about Jesus' glory in relation to God. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Those two terms, radiance and exact imprint, are not found anywhere else in the New Testament. The writer just grabs them and drags them in because he's trying to be very specific and clear about the beauty and the glory of Jesus. He says he is the radiance of the glory of God. He doesn't reflect the glory of God. Moses reflected the glory of God. Remember when Moses came down from the mountain, his face was shining. He was reflecting the glory of God. He'd been in God's presence and the light had shone so brightly it reflected off his face. That's not Jesus. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the radiance. To see Jesus is to see the Father. That's that's what he's trying to say. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. Uh, God's nature is what he is in in essence. And so, again, we're saying a staggering thing, that Jesus, the man born to Mary in a stable, Jesus, the man raised in Nazareth, a podunk place out in the boondocks of Judea, Uh, Jesus As he's revealed in Scripture, this man is the perfect, visible imprint of the invisible nature of God. If you see Jesus, you see God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, is what Jesus told his disciples. That's just, who else, who would claim that? I mean, who would dare? Muhammad doesn't dare say that. What other religious teacher would dare to say, I am God, the maker of heaven and earth God, the heir of all things God, the exact imprint of the nature of God, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. That's Jesus. That's who we're talking about. See, the beauty again of this is that if we belong to Jesus, we belong to God himself. If we belong to Jesus, we belong to the the most magnificent, glorious, worthy being in all the universe. And we belong in the most astonishing way. We belong because this Jesus offered his life for us. The glory of his redemption. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Purification for sins? How, why would this glorious being, what is he doing with sin? Well, he, You see, he came to deal with your sin and my sin. To make purification in his own body. This glorious being set aside the glory of heaven and, and came down in human flesh exactly to make purification for sin by the sacrifice of his body. And he did this for sinners, you see, for you and for me. And then he ascended and he took his place at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down because the work was uh, completed, it's accomplished, it's finished. And now he sits down having all power and authority to apply that work to the lives of real sinners today. That's what he's doing. It's what he's doing right now. 
Jesus in his word right now, you see, is actively engaged in your heart, actively speaking to you, actively drawing you. Do you see me? Do you sense the glory? Are you willing to worship? Are you able to trust? It's his word we're we're dealing with. Jesus right now at the right hand of God is, is engaging you and calling you to faith, to believe and trust in him, to see him and worship him. John Newton in his little poem speaks of this. He says, exalted on his glorious throne, I see him make my cause his own. Then all my anxious cares subside, for Jesus lives and will provide. Jesus lives and will provide. We don't need to fear. And then the writer speaks of his glory in relation to angels. I'm not going to take a long time with this, but there seems to be some confusion in the early church, much as there is in the Roman Catholic Church today. When they speak of Mary and they exalt Mary and talk about Mary and they sing about Mary and say prayers to Mary. And in spite of the fact, you know, not only is that just, that just theologically wrong, it is, it's, it's theological, um, it's robbery. You see, you're stealing the glory that belongs to Jesus. And by, and by exalting Mary, you're distracting people from the, the unique, all-sufficient glory of Jesus and that seems to be what was taking place in the, in the early church. And, and so the, the writer says, wait a minute. Angels themselves would say, don't worship us. Every time they show up and somebody falls down, don't worship me. Worship him. And the, and the writer says, Jesus has received a greater name. Which angel ever received the title son? God never said that to an angel. He said it to Jesus. Over and over and over again. This is my son. The son of God. Jesus receives the worship of angels. They worship him. They bow down before him. You can read about it in the book of Revelation. Then chapter 5. I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. The voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands singing with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. What glorious worship. As they bow down before the Lamb. You see, we, we, we've got to rescue, in a sense, our conception of Jesus from the sappy, sentimental, uh, Americanized versions of Christ. The, the, the meek, mild, sort of long-haired, doe-faced, um, just this, this sappy, sentimental figure. It's not Jesus. It's one of the reasons we don't put pictures of Jesus in our Sunday school literature. We don't want to confuse the kids. If you want to know who Jesus is, read the book of Revelation. I hope to start a study on that soon. But that's, that's not him. The Jesus of Scripture will buckle your knees when you see him. He will terrify you when you see him in the best possible way. John, John the Apostle, who knows Jesus, who loves Jesus, who walked with Jesus, when Jesus shows up in the book of Revelation like a blazing fire, John is undone. John collapses. That's Jesus. He's the king. He's wrapped in light. 
splendor and majesty are before him. The angels bow down not because it's their job. They can't help it. It is, it is the creaturely necessity in the face of the refulgent splendor and glory and beauty of Jesus. And then the writer applies it. After all this reminder of who Jesus is and all of his glory, the, the author says, therefore, verse, chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, we, we have to pay much closer attention to what we've heard. We have to pay a lot closer attention because there's danger here. That's what the writer wants us to see. There's, there's, there's danger afoot when you're talking about Jesus. I remember back in the farm, um, Dad let us start handling farm machinery, but before he would, he would just point out all the dangers. Okay, here's the, here's the hay bind, and I'm going to send you out and, and to cut hay. Now, see that sickle that goes back and forth like this? Yeah, don't get your fingers in there. Because it'll just take them off. The flail chopper with those nice big knives going like this, stay away. It'll cut you up into little itty bitty pieces and throw you into the back of the wagon. That's real. The corn chopper with that nice chain drawing all the corn in, don't start getting your hand in there and pulling that out because it'll rip your arm off. I went to Dort College with a, a young man. That's exactly what happened to him. Okay, there's danger there. Well, that's what, that's what the writer's saying. There's danger here. Why? Well, because lest we drift away from this. You see, the danger is all is partly in us. Um, the danger is that we might just we might get bored with Jesus. Can you imagine that? And yet it happens all the time. People get bored with Jesus. And they 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 drift away. No one bolts and you right, somebody doesn't you don't hear stories of someone saying, you know, I went to bed at night, I was I had a great prayer time, and, and um, I was so in love with Christ and committed to Christ. And, but I got up the next morning, and it was raining outside, and I had a cold, and I said, forget it. I'm done. And never went back. Nobody does that. People don't bolt from Jesus. People get bored with Jesus. People get tired of the same old story, and they sort of drift away, and they, they still believe it, but it doesn't capture their heart anymore. They're they're just kind of becoming numb to the truth. It's not doing much for them like it used to. And then some trial comes along or some temptation comes along. A new relationship comes along. And or just opportunities because they're making more money and they like taking their vacations and they like having Sundays to themselves. And, and they just realize, they, you know, I don't really believe this stuff anymore. There are people in the church every Sunday like that. We're just drifting. They're there for whatever reason, but they're not, they're not plugged in. They're not listening. They're not, they're not paying close attention. And all it's going to take is some crisis or some, some temptation, and, and then they'll just be gone. Grand Rapids is full of people like this. Full of it. See, apostasy, friends, is the easiest thing in the world. All, all you need to do is just, just drift. Do what you feel like. That's all you need to really do. Just stop paying close attention to the message that you've heard. Don't, don't treat it like it's the most important thing in the whole world. Don't hunger and thirst for this. Don't, don't beg God to wake you up. Don't plead with him to give you ears to hear this and a heart to care about it and a mind to understand it. Just accept your, your apathy as, as normal and, and keep drifting. But, the, but you see, the warning here is that it's, it's deadly to do that. 
It's deadly to do that. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You see, he's, he's talking to people who are tired. They're wore out. They're, they're exhausted. And some of them are drifting. It's just, it's not worth it. If this is what it means to be a Christian, I'm just going to go back to my Jewish community and my Jewish family and, and I'll just tell them it was all a big mistake. And I'll get my home back and my family back and my life back. And the writer says, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If Uzzah, remember the story of Uzzah, who, who the, ox, the, the ark of God was being carried on a cart and the oxen stumbled and the cart tipped and Uzzah, with the best of intentions, reached out his hand to stay, stabilize the ark of God and he was struck dead? If Uzzah is struck dead with the best of intentions because of his disrespect for the ark of God, then the writer is saying, well, how will you escape? How will I escape if we just disrespect it by ignoring it, disrespect it by getting bored with it, disrespect it by just going and, and doing our thing, disrespect it by, by, by living our life on our terms? How will we escape? So friends, don't neglect the astounding love of God in Christ. And if your heart is dead to it, would you just beg God for mercy? If the gospel is not glorious to you, if, if Jesus is, is old news, would you, would you plead with God to wake you up? Don't neglect the perfect sacrifice of the Son of God on the cross for sinners. Receive it and believe it. Don't neglect the promise of free forgiveness for you. The promise of full impu uh, imputed righteousness and justification. Run to that promise. Don't neglect the gift of the Holy Spirit. Ask for it. Don't neglect the inheritance ever of everlasting life. The writer's going to say, run after it. Go. Keep going. You see, there's a great salvation. It's a great salvation. A salvation for you, the sinner, to the uttermost until you reign with Jesus Christ in glory. It's a great salvation. Embrace it. Encourage each other in this. Because you see, Jesus Christ really is all the writer says he is. And he's coming back. And he promises that we shall see him and we shall be with him forever. As we believe, as we hold to the faith, as we hold to our confession. Newton closed his little poem with this, by faith. I see the hour at hand when in his presence I shall stand. Then it will be my endless bliss to see him where and as he is. Let's let, let that be what we pursue, to see Jesus where and as he is. Friend, I don't know where you are in your heart and where you are in your spiritual meter of vibrancy. I don't know. I just know mine goes all over the place. But the grace of God, you see, keeps calling us back, doesn't it? And the promise is that when we come back, when we, re, when we confess our sin, we, we, when we repent and say, Lord, forgive me for my hard heart, forgive me for my, for my pride and my ignorance and, and all the sins that tangle me up. When, when we come back, Jesus receives us. He promises to. And he forgives us. He promises to. And he lifts us up. He promises to. And so wherever you are tonight, don't, don't just say, well, that was good. That was interesting. Jesus is speaking to you. Jesus 
The king has addressed you. Let's respond in faith. Amen. Father in heaven, tonight we bow before Jesus Christ, the great I am, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who was willing to be named the friend of sinners, the sacrifice for the wicked and the guilty. Father, you know our heart tonight, every single one of us. And we, Lord, we confess that we have often and easily drifted. And it is your grace that has called us back. But Lord, we, we want to be people who pursue and who hunger to know Jesus. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be poured out in this place, on these lives, that we would just realize how passing, how fleeting and temporary are the things of this world and, and how rich and glorious and eternal and true are the things pertaining to Jesus Christ and all that is ours in him. And Father, Father if there's, uh, Lord, any here tonight who have never bowed the knee, I pray that you'd give the grace to respond to Jesus in faith. But Lord, we all need to respond to him in faith again and again and again. Confessing sin, turning away from sin as we acknowledge his lordship over our life. We need to trust him in our places of, of fear and guilt and shame and receive all that he is. Lord, we need to hear Jesus and respond then in faith. I pray that as we open our Bibles and get on our knees in this coming week, Lord, that we would commune with Christ. And Father, I pray that your work then would be a work of grace and kindness and mercy and goodness until we finally see him who loved us and gave his life for us. And may that day come soon, but Lord, prepare us then today. May us make us glad servants. Help us to repent of our negligence and to seek Jesus to look unto him. We'll give him the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.